This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. So I'm actually going to circle back a little bit um, to what Danielle was talking about with easements, and I'm going to kind of be talking about some disputes that come about with your more typical easement use, um, let's see, uh, with affirmative easements. And so an affirmative easement creates a non-possessory right to enter and use the land in the possession of another and obligates the possessor not to interfere with the uses authorized by the easement. So this is kind of what you're typically looking at when you have an easement on your property. And a lot of times it's a right of people to pass and repass. And what's the extent of that right to pass and repass? Are they going to just be walking on the property? Are they going to be driving? You know, what's the limit of that? Can they bring their friends? Can they have a party? Um, and so this is all, it comes up a lot with water usage, going down to the lake, going down to the beach, but also just in your typical, you know, private ways that you see labeled everywhere that are just small streets that have three or four houses on it that ends up being that they all kind of have the right to access. Um, and sometimes there can be additional people that have right to access that way as well that at first aren't totally obvious. So um, basically, um, you have to kind of find out it goes back to kind of what Danielle was saying that first of all, you want to walk the land, but also you need to say what your deed says. And you need to look into these easements and what the language is so that you really do understand why there's an easement there. So we've had litigation before where um, there's actually um, access to waterfront that has an entire neighborhood um, that allows access for that. But then there's three or four houses that need more use of that easement right of way because it's the actual way to get to their houses versus just to walk down to see the, the water at the end of the street. Um, and so what kind of rights do they have to maintain that? What kind of rights do they have to widen it? What kind of rights do they have to come in and say, I want it to be shell road versus pavement road? So those are some of the things that can come up. And the law isn't that clear cut. So a lot of times these disputes aren't easy to resolve because there's a lot of subjective interpretation of what um, is reasonable on both people's rights. So what it comes down to is the rights of the owner of the servient estate to use their own property and then the rights of the easement holder. Um, and Martin v. Simmons is kind of the main case that kind of allows the um the kind of outline of what you need to consider um when looking at the rights of these two entities the rights of the owner of the servient state and the rights of the easement holder uh because 
the SJC in Massachusetts has very much taken an approach that it needs to be a balanced consideration of both of the rights, um, which, you know, from what I can tell, makes it a lot more subjective and a lot harder to really from the outset know who's going to come out on top in terms of whose right, um, you know, their interpretation of their right, who is correct in that balance. Um, but Martin V. Simmons was helpful in a way and did kind of put more analysis out there of how to kind of balance and weigh it um, and who has the burden and also kind of pulled out language from the restatement and applied it and kind of expanded the MPM case. Um, so basically what it ended up saying was that uh, the SJC says that you know, there may be an easement and it may even say in the deed documents that it can be up to 20 feet or 30 feet. But they ended up saying, the SJC, that you can change that. You can narrow it. You can change the dimensions of it. So long as the purpose for which the easement was created is not frustrated and the utility of the easement is not lessened. So first, you really need to understand what is the purpose of the easement? Why is the easement created? Why does the person have the ability to pass and repass? And that might seem obvious and it might just be, oh, obviously it's to drive to and from their house. But is there an additional component? Do they have access to waterfront? If they do, what would that mean to pass and repass? How much more rights would that give or how much more narrow would that be? Um, are they allowed to bring you know, is the expectation that they could drive, you know, a cement trailer down or is the expectation that you would have a regular car? So, and these things can obviously change over time as expectations or development or whatever else changes. Um, but first and foremost, you have to look at the language and what is the purpose. But then in addition to that, um, you need to look at the utility of the easement and if it's not lessened. So, a lot of times this will happen when you have, you know, a private way adjacent to a home. And so a home, uh, the easement might be in the deeded language, have language back to the title instrument saying that it can be 20 feet wide. But it ends up being just uh, a narrow one lane traffic because of the aesthetic of the neighborhood. You can picture kind of a New England town or a coastal town where it just has a one way lane and you're going to and from. Um, and most of the houses in the neighborhood don't want that to change. They don't really want it to be paved. They don't want it to be wider. And, and someone else disagrees with that. Um, so who kind of wins out in that sort of dispute? And in addition to that, like Danielle brought up earlier, it's presumed that you own to the middle of the street. Um, and if you do, in fact, then you have that interest in the middle of the road what can you do with your own property? Are you able to change it? Are you able to put in landscaping and grass and all of this without impacting the easement holder's right to pass and repass? And, and what's that line? So basically what comes up again is that there isn't a clear cut answer. Um, and so this leads to a lot of problems because neighbors end up thinking you know, it, it, too, with walking the land, they come in and, and see what the road looks like and they expect it to stay that way. Or they expect that everyone kind of agrees that it should be this way. And then they come to find out that's not the case at all. Um, and this can lead to a lot of things. But then they give in the, in the case, like, oh, yeah, we define it. It's a, 
you know, it's limited to the use of the burdened property for a particular purpose. But then, you know, and then the holder of the easement is entitled to make only the uses reasonably necessary for the specified specified purpose. But, you know, they're not really defining what's reasonably necessary. You still need to figure that out. And then in addition, the person, the owner of the Serbian estate, you can't unreasonably interfere. But again, they don't even get into if that's objective, subjective. So, so the owner of, of the um, the owner of the Serbian estate might say, you know, it's not unreasonable for me to have these low plants right here. It doesn't interfere in any way with you passing the repass. And the other person who has the easement rights is saying it interferes significantly. And what are you doing? You can't do that. And they can't get anything accomplished and decide what to do. So. Um, then you get to the intended use. And so some of these questions on the slide are kind of some of the things that can come up. But what basically ends up being is that you have to define the purpose. And then from defining the purpose, you have to see what the intended use is. And like we were like I was just saying, it's easier said than done. Um, so what is reasonably necessary for the specified purpose? But basically, this all shows how important the language of the easement is and how important it is for drafting an easement. But especially here in Mass, we have some really old easements. And so we are left to interpret some interesting language that did not necessarily have the restatement in mind when it was drafted. So Mass has adopted 4.8.3 of the restatement and servitude, which can be helpful because, you know, it's so fact specific when you're doing case law and searching for your client to see who's the reasonable one. Um, the restatement language is helpful, but also you can look at case law from other states that also interpret the same restatement that has been accepted explicitly by the SJC to find additional fact patterns that go the way of your client and use it as persuasive evidence of this is the way in which to interpret the restatement. This is a additional facts to kind of support my version of what's reasonable, my client's version of what's reasonable. So it's clear that the SJC wants a balanced approach to considering the rights of the owner of the Serbian estate and the rights of the easement holder. They want to maximize the value of the property for the owner of the Serbian estate. So that's a big consideration of how is it going to impact the value of the personal property or the, the real property while protecting at the same time the rights of the easement holder. But what's important to remember and something that's good ultimately for the owner of the Serbian estate is that it remains the burden on the party asserting the benefit of the easement to prove its existence. So on top of saying that it, it's my easement to, and my ability to pass and repass, on top of having to show that it's reasonable what I'm asking to be able to do. So walk versus drive or pave it versus keep it stone um, or whatever it may, surface level it may be. Um, I not only have to show it's reasonable, but I have the burden to say that that benefit actually exists. So there's that preliminary stage that everyone needs to remember has to be put forward. So that goes back to the language. Um, and so it's important for either party to know what's the likelihood that it will be interpreted in the first place that this easement even gives you this benefit in the first place. Um, and if it does give you this benefit, you know, are the ways in which 
it exists, reasonable to do that benefit or not. So here, Martin V. Simmons again said that the Serbian estate owner has the right to change um, the locations, the dimensions, any sort of way in which the property is, as long as it doesn't lessen the utility, increase the burden, or frustrate the purpose. Um, and that seems like great. You can do a lot of things. But again, there's a lot of wiggle room in interpreting those three prongs and causes a lot of problems. So that is where you want to try to avoid um, by understanding as much as possible when you buy the property as to what the easements are and what are the expectations of those that have the benefit of the easement. In terms of the easement holder, so again, it is the burden is on the easement holder to say what they um, what benefit they have, but there also is case law and a significant amount of case law that says that they have the right to maintain the easement as well. So if you have an easement that says that you can pass and repass, this also, the inference is that you are able to make the necessary repairs to the easement in order to continue to allow you to pass and repass. And there's a lot of varying interpretations of how far that can go, to what extent you can kind of just walk onto someone else's property and, you know, make the necessary repairs to allow for your easement to continue. And there have been times that they have allowed people to pave, they've allowed people to clear brush and limbs, gradation, leveling, all of these different things that would to a lot of property owners feel pretty imposing that someone can just walk in and without your permission in any sort of way do these sort of things. Um, and so having language that talks more explicitly in the easement about maintenance and repair and the type of way it's going to be maintained is very important. And also trying to work with whoever's around you at the time interpreting the language to see if you can get into some sort of agreement um, as to how you're going to maintain the property. But um, this can lead to a lot of conflict as well. To what extent can they maintain it, repair it, change it as an easement holder? Um, and how that can feel pretty imposing on a property owner. Um, I'm gonna skip back for a minute. But so best ways to avoid this disputes regarding easement use has, you know, best case scenarios, you're drafting the easement agreement and you can use the language that way. But otherwise it is kind of understanding well what you're buying into, the easements that exist, who has the benefit of them and, and kind of probably doing some due diligence of figuring out, are there some outstanding issues with, you know, the people that benefit from the easement have they been creating conflicts in the past? Um, there, I've had a client before where there were some red flags when she bought the property of saying, you don't owe any fees, you don't, you know, to kind of try to warn her that maybe someone else on the street had kind of been saying that in order to get the benefit of this easement, you have to pay fees, you have to do this, you have to do that. And at the time, I don't think they really knew what it was in reference to, and they just appreciated the the information that there was no burden or no expectation to do that. 
And then they'd been in litigation for years. So, I mean, that's because there was vague language in the easement saying that, you know, an association will be or will be created and there can be payments made. And if you cease making payments, the, the benefit of the easement but will, will go away. Some language to that effect, but there was no association formed. There was, the, the language actually has no, um, no substance to it. It was done well way back in the day, um, I think at this point, 100 years ago, and the deeds that have transferred since don't have any language to that, um, stating that. And so there is no association. There is no understanding of who's supposed to maintain the easement. And there is no understanding of how that maintenance should be done by whom and to what extent. And that has caused a lot of issues because of the number of people that are that have the right to use the easement. So the case law doesn't really help out in this. In other states, there are some statutes, such I think California has one that makes it a little bit more clear of how to share cost sharing with easements, particularly with private ways or roads for passing and repassing, but Mass doesn't have that. Um, so basically, you know, they're normally, they'll say that it rests on the holder of the easement to pay for any maintenance. Um, so that doesn't put the burden on any sort of owner of the Serbia estate to, to pay for maintenance of an easement that someone else is benefiting from. But that becomes impractical when there's multiple people benefiting from it and they don't have any sort of explicit language of how that should be shared. Um, so it's very easy to end up with a reality where a lot of people are shirking that responsibility and the road comes into very um, disrepair. Um, so I think we're kind of bad on time, so I'll keep going. Um, anyways, HOAs can be beneficial in this regard, but again, you need to be careful with language, but a lot of times HOAs, homeowners associations get put in place if you're dealing with a private road, and that can be a great way of having some language. Um, that it might be another way in which for the current day to think about gross easements or licenses, because then you can talk about maintenance in the current state for the current owners that doesn't necessarily have to run with the land, but can be an agreement between neighbors um, for, for the time being, not the best way to move it along to, it just kind of delays the issue for the next person. But easement and trespass claims, be careful if this count comes, trespass can't happen unless you're on the, entering on the property of another um, that you don't have a right to be on. So if you have an easement right to be on the property, then you can't trespass. And a lot of times I think people try to bring trespass claims to just add on another count or cause another problem. But again, it can't happen. So that's a good way to knock it out and say there is no trespass claim. And then that might mean that that limits the issues that they can bring in the first place because now they don't even have a claim. Um, and then, you know, when you have a private way, you really should look into it. What extent is it private? Um, and what extent is it actually subject to public usage because it's a road that gets you to and from? Utilities, easements will be um, uh, applicable from the town, other things as well. So you want to be cognizant of the fact that a private way is not um, these days always, always means that you can do whatever you want. Um, Okay, we'll go to that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Kate.